Good morning. We are in our final week on the church. And this week, we're going to ask the question, why does God want to be worshipped? And how do we do it? Why does God want to be worshipped? And how do we do it? If I could flip a switch over here on the wall, and let's say it was not a physical switch, but a, a spiritual switch. I think what we would see, if, if we could see in the unseen in the spiritual realm for just, just a moment, we would see that as we gather for worship, it's not just us. That the scriptures are clear that there are truly angelic, angelic beings that are in the presence of God's saints when they come to worship. And I'm not real clear, but I think that also the saints that have passed are the so cloud, the cloud of witnesses. And we would be able to see, because I don't think that we, we merely, and I don't think we primarily worship in our physical being, and I'm going to show you that in the text later today, but there is something soulish in the unseen where true worship happens and because of that because that is supernatural let's pray father it is because i believe that your scripture teach that for us to worship in spirit and in truth there must be something supernaturally happening here and so god i ask that you would come that you would instruct us that you would convict us that you would inspire us that you would encourage us but mostly father that we would live out our purpose in this life and that is to glorify you and to worship you and to make much of you so would you be with us during this time as we look at your word i pray in jesus name amen You may know 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Some of you have probably even put it to memory. The verse says, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, all of life for the Christian should be done as an act of worship. But how do you really do that? And then why does God want to be worshipped? So we're going to talk about three questions, and that's today's sermon. The first question is, why do we worship God? The second question is, how do we worship God? And the third question is, what are the results of worshiping God? So why? how and what are the results let's talk about why we worship God and look with me again at John 4 23 and 24 Danny just read it for us but let's read it again together in John 4 23 and 24 it says this but the hour is coming and is now here 
when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Jesus here is speaking to the woman at the well, and she's saying, aren't we supposed to worship over here at this particular place? And he's saying, well, God is spirit, and those who worship him will worship in spirit. Not necessarily the Holy Spirit here, but in their souls. That's what I meant by our worship is not merely physical. It's not even our, just our words or even our raising of hands, but there is a soulish element, a spiritual element to our worship. And then also notice in our text it says, down in the middle of the text it says, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father is seeking worshipers. It's interesting. As I ask the question, why does God want us to worship Him? The Father is seeking worshipers. What this could do for you and for me is shift a focus, and I pray that it does. That has been one of my prayers as I prepared for this sermon, that we would shift from a more man-centered understanding of what God is doing in the world and the gospel to a more God-centered understanding. You see, it is the whole Christian experience isn't so much about witnessing or evangelism. That, that's not God's end game. But yet, sometimes we're tempted to believe that's kind of what this is all about. People come to know Jesus is not the ultimate end game. The worship of God is the goal. God's saving design for man is not ultimate, though we sometimes kind of slip into thinking that our salvation and coming to church and God saving us, that's the ultimate thing. Redemption, salvation, restoration, those are not ultimate goals in this world. God is up to something infinitely more valuable, infinitely more valuable that he would be seen as supreme above all things, that his name would be made much of. This truth is found on almost every page of the Bible, and we're going to do a survey in just a second to see it. In our mission statement, you may pick up one of those cards that says, we exist to spread the supremacy of God. As a church, we exist to spread the supremacy of God. Another way that we could have said it is that we exist to gather other worshipers of our great God. That that's what we're about. That He would be made much of. That we would worship him as the supreme being that he is. In other words, this world, contrary to what I believed for so many years, 
is not really about me. And it's not about you. If you're a follower of Christ, the shift, it seems kind of subtle, but it needs to shift from you to Him. We wish to see Him made much of in our hearts, in our souls, in our minds. But sadly, because of the fall, the fall has corrupted our world and our shift always seems to come back to me by default. And honestly, if I'm, if I'm frank, I don't often just feel like worshiping God when I wake up in the morning. Because my sin nature has shifted my perspective to me, not to God. But make no mistake about it. God's ultimate allegiance is not to you or me. His ultimate allegiance is to himself. And God doesn't leave this up for debate. I said I wanted to survey some high points. Hopefully, Michael, with the PowerPoint, you can keep up because I think that it is really important that you see this from the Scripture and me just speaking it. I would like for you to be able to read it and me speak it. And so let me ask the question this way. Why did God create us? We, we heard it in the, new, in the catechism. But Isaiah 43, 6 through 7 says it this way. God says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. I created them all for my glory. So the question, why did God create? For his glory. The next question, why did God choose a people and make Israel his possession? Why did God pick Israel out of all the people and make them his possession? Well, in Jeremiah 13, 11, it says, I made the whole house of Israel cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. That he set aside a people to make his name great, that he would receive glory. And then, why did God rescue them, the nation of Israel, from bondage in Egypt? We know that they were in bondage in Egypt. And why did God rescue them? Well, Psalm 106, 7 through 8 says this. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider thy wonderful works, but rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. What I'm attempting to do right now is this. I think that me and you and all believers for all time, we wake up every day with a very me-centric worldview. It's the way we see the world. What I'm trying to do is take a sledgehammer of God's truth and pound into us like hammer blows the reality that this is God's world created for God's glory and not necessarily ours. 
And when we really understand that in a profound way in our soul, it changes our worship, it changes the way we think about church, it changes the way we think about each other, it has a profound way of shaking us up. He saved them for his namesake. And then, why did God spare them in the wilderness? When they were 40 years out there in the wilderness, why did God spare Israel? Because they were great people. They were awesome. No, if you read the story, they were knuckleheads. And they kept turning away from their God. And then in Ezekiel 20:14, the prophet says it this way: I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. So why did he do it? For the sake of his name. Why didn't God cast away his people when they rejected him as a king? In 1 Samuel, we studied that, chapter 12, verses 20 through 22. The, the people rejected God and asked for a king you know why God didn't reject them at that point because they were rejecting him it says in that verse fear not you have done all this evil yet do not turn aside from following the Lord for the Lord will not cast you away his people for his great name's sake his namesake, his namesake, his glory, his namesake, his glory over and over and then why did God bring back his people when they were in exile? If you're reading the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, he says it this way. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36. Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, and the nations will know that I am the Lord. It is not for your sake, don't be confused, that I will act, says the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and be confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. And then finally, why will Jesus come back? And he will, and I love the song that we sang. Death has no grip on you. Next week, I may be gone. One of you may be gone. But if we know the Lord, we're just graduating. We're passing to a place far beyond our imagination. But why will the Lord come back? Is it to save his people primarily? Primarily? Look at 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. I'm waiting. I want you to read this with me. This one is, wow. Those who do not obey the gospel will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction and exclusion from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed. He's coming for his glory. 
He's coming that he will be made much of, that he will be marveled at. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship exists because missions does not. I mean, missions exist because worship doesn't, says John Piper. Do you feel loved by God because you believe He makes much of you or because you believe He frees you and empowers you to enjoy making much of Him? There's the shift from me to Him. From me to Him. This concept helps us in our thinking to shift from man-centered to God-centered. However, I must admit, this sounds egotistical to me. God wants us to worship Him. If it was clear to you that I wanted you to worship me, it would no doubt be a complete put-off to you. I would be rightly seen by you as self-centered and narcissistic. Why isn't this true about God? If he wants to be worshipped, he alone is worthy of all honor and praise. Listen, listen what he says in Psalm 50. Starting in verse 17. For you hate discipline, and you cast off my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Then he says, these things you have done, and I have been silent but then listen what the Lord says you thought that I was one like yourself you thought that I'm like you but now I rebuke you and lay a charge before you God's saying I'm not like you I'm wholly other than you and so when you feel in your heart this creeping up God must be a narcissist if he wants us to worship him, you must remember he is completely unlike us. He is everything in the world that is good and true and right. And, and in previous sermons, I've said, you know, when you hold the newborn baby in your hands, that is but an echo of the goodness of God. When you go out in nature and you're just astonished by a mountain with a peak that's covered in snow, it is only an echo of his power and his beauty and his creation. You see, the greatest thing God can give you or me is himself. Because he is all that is true and good and right. The greatest thing he can give you is himself. Now, our hesitancy to give ourselves to him, Michael, there should be a slide for this. 
Our hesitancy to give ourselves to him is like this. It's like that of a tiny shell on the seashore, afraid to give up the teaspoon of water it holds, lest there not be enough in the ocean to fill it up again. Can the shell imagine the depth and plenitude of the ocean? Can you and I fathom the richness and the fullness of God's love? No, we cannot. Nearness to Him is our good. It is the greatest gift He could ever give us. In Psalm 73, 28, it says, But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. Oh, to be near Him, to be in His presence is not simply to be in the presence of greatness, but eternity-altering benevolence, goodness, pure goodness. Therefore, our hearts in worship they will sing for joy when the fog does clear and the sin is removed and we catch just a glimpse of who he really is. When we catch just a glimpse of his presence, our hearts will sing. Clyde Kilby says it this way. <clears throat> One of the saddest effects of sin or the fall is that we get tired of things. So we go to the Swiss Alps. We see them for the first time and we're stunned speechless. And so we rent a little chalet at the foot of the Alps and for three mornings we get up and we have our coffee and we stand there and we look at those Alps and we're just amazed. But he says on the fourth morning, we're watching television again. Good day, America. And he says, that is the effects of the fall. That is the effects of the fall. I remember when Jen and Charlie Brooks were in the hospital due to complications from the birth of their latest child. Peggy and I took Callie and Coleman to the Atlanta United parade after they won the MLS championship here in Atlanta. There were a few thousand people there on a really cold day. Matter of fact, we left early because I think the kids were freezing. Um, you know, those thousands of people, what they wanted was they wanted to share in the victory. They wanted to be in the presence of champions, to be around something special and to celebrate with them. As Christians, we come together weekly to watch the parade of God's glory pass by, so to speak. To be near Him and to be with one another, celebrating in this incredible kingdom that God has brought us into. That is part of our worship. Worship is the activity of glorifying God in His presence with our voices, our hearts, our mind, and most importantly, our soul. 
You can be here and be so far from worship and I'll never know it. Have no idea. Because true worship, when it's really true, it's happening in the spiritual realm in your soul. And we can't see that. Look at uh, what John 4, 23 and 24 says. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And I said, this is not the Holy Spirit. This is a spiritual realm. We worship in a spiritual realm. This means that true worship involves not only our physical bodies, but our souls. The immaterial aspect of our existence that primary, primarily acts in the unseen world. Mary, the mother of Jesus, knew this. In Luke 1, 46 through 47, she said, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Therefore, genuine worship can't be self-generated. Genuine worship can't be self-generated, worked up from within yourself. Genuine worship, don't be fooled. You could go to a great Christian you know, church or whatever, and they're doing this wonderful music and people are raising their hands and crying while all the while, perhaps, maybe in their soul, they're not right with a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. You know what God says? That can't be genuine worship. He says, put that down and go make it right with your brother or sister. So we know from Scripture, even though they may cry and they may sing, they're not right with God. That's not genuine worship. Can't be genuine worship. Can't be genuine. And this is the thing, is God's made it this way on purpose for the body of Christ that when we're not right with one another, when we have a root of bitterness in us towards a brother or sister in Christ, in our believing body, you can't be worshiping God. Can't happen. Can't happen. You can raise your hands. You can sing all the hymns. You can get up here and read the scripture. You can get up here and preach. But you can't be right with God and not be right with people. That's the way God has set it up. And that's when we know there's not genuine worship. So therefore, what do we do? How do we create an environment? How do we come into genuine worship? I've got a few things for you. Actually, there's five, and I'll hit them pretty quick. We've got to pray, especially the leaders of the church. We've got to pray that our people will be genuine worshipers of Christ. That is a spiritual thing. We can all show up on Sunday and we can legalistically be good churchgoers. But that doesn't mean any of us are actually worshiping God from our soul. So the second thing is this. Christians need to be right in broken relationships. 1 John 
4.20 says it this way. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, and we know hate doesn't mean like you're killing them. Or you're just not right with them. And hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And I want to say just a quick word on this about racism in the church. If I don't like somebody because they're not from my culture or my color, then I don't know. I don't know if that person could even know Christ. That's my conviction. Read it. 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. The church should lead the world in loving one another in diversity. And that is not the story of the church in America. I'm just telling you. It's not our story. Why does the world not take notice of us and want to follow our God? Because we look just like them. We don't love each other. And we especially don't love somebody if they don't look like me or do the things that I do the way I do them. You can't worship God and hold that in your heart. You say you love God, but you hate your brother. You're a liar. I'm not saying that. John's saying that. Second, I mean the third one, husbands. 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. If men did this, I think feminism would disappear. Because if women were being honored and exalted like the scriptures teach, they would never even have felt a need to have to push their way up. Because we would be lifting them up. Men would be exalting them like the scriptures are saying. But that has not happened. There's been an abuse of power. And then we come in here and we worship, but our worship is not sincere. How could it be? It says, since there errs with you in the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Your worship can be hindered and your prayers can be hindered. And then the fourth one, we're, all, we're talking about how do we enter into sincere worship? And Hebrews 12, look there with me because I don't have it uh, in my notes the way I should. And so if y'all would turn there with me, and I, by the way, I just think it's good for God's people to be turning through the pages of the Bible and looking at God's Word in worship. Um, Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. I'm talking here about holiness. That how do we enter into worship? We must enter as holy people. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Strive for peace with one another and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, you will not see him. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God 
that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. If there is a root of bitterness, and if there is not a true pursuit of holiness in your life, you can't really come to worship and it be genuine. Just can't happen. You can show up at church and get credit, but I don't know if that's sincere worship. We should be striving for holiness. And then finally, the third part of the sermon is the results of worship. The results are this, and I'm going to blow through them quickly. We delight, we will delight in God. David said in Psalm 1611, and here's the problem, my problem and yours, I bet. I don't always delight in God. I really delight in a lot of other stuff. But it's crazy. I've got the wrong price tag and the wrong value system. He is everything that is good and true and right. And yet I value these other things more than I should. David says, you make known to me in Psalm 1611, the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Worship leads us to delighting in God and finding him to be our great joy and treasure. You wonder why you're dry in your spiritual life? It might be that your worship has been non-existent or insincere. Because when we truly draw near to God, later I'm going to say it in the third one, he draws near to us and we begin to delight in him. That is part of it. The second one, God will delight in you. In Zephaniah 3.17, it says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. One of the biggest struggles in my life is... Uh, I want to be somebody. Growing up, you know, I want to be an NFL quarterback. And then I got to college playing football and I realized that ain't going to happen. So I switched it to some other ways. And I think men ask themselves in a million different ways, unconsciously, all the time, do I have what it takes? Because I want to be somebody. I think the women, the question for women might be a little bit different. I think that they ask that question, but I also think they ask the question, will anybody ever find me beautiful? And this is what I want to tell you. I want to tell this to your soul. Life is not about being somebody, but about knowing someone. That's what life is about. And it is to know your creator, the supreme being of all the world. We see people say it all the time. They send pictures out. They live on Facebook. Here I am with this celebrity. Here I am doing this. Isn't my life great? Look, I'm on face chat. I like saying it that way because I don't do those things. But 
uh, I'm on InstaFace, you know. Um, the truth is, guys, I don't care what you're doing, and nobody else really does either. We need to focus on our relationship with the Lord. It's not about being somebody. It's about knowing somebody. Another result is we draw near to God. And the other one is he draws near to us. Hebrews 10, 22 says, let us draw near with a true heart. And then in uh, James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. These are all results of real worship. And then God will minister to us. In 1 Peter 2, 5, he says, you're like living stones being built up. God is saying, when you worship, when you come before me, you're gonna be built up like living stones, a holy priesthood. In other words, I'm gonna minister to you. I'm gonna do something for you. And then another result is God's enemies flee. In 2 Chronicles 20, you see that. And finally, the last result I have is that unbelievers will know that they are in the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 14, 25. Application, and I want to hit this quickly. So how do we worship here at First Baptist Church Chattahoochee? I think every one of you members and people going through the process of membership, you have two options of the way that you think about our worship. We can see our worship kind of like a kind of like a country club. We join to see kind of what we can get. Here's the way you know if that's kind of how you're thinking. The pastor is supposed to feed us and we we determine as a congregation what's the acceptable range of time and so forth. I mean, we got to get to lunch. Someone who's viewing it kind of like a country club, their preferences have to be met. Whatever style it is in the worship that you really like, you're going to either stay here because your preferences are being met, or you're going to leave and go somewhere else because they're not being met. When the most important part is, are we coming together as a true body of believers and studying and knowing God's word and lifting him up and making much of him because here's where I'm going you can have a country club approach to church and membership or you can have the approach that Jesus has asked us to have which is to put others before ourselves. and you may be sitting there thinking oh he's talking to the older generation or oh he's talking to the younger generation or I'm talking to all of us we all have a fallen sin nature I think that what should be happening in the church and what would be the most honoring and God-glorifying thing is not that I get my preference of, you know, the biggest issue usually is music, that I get my preference of music every week. The biggest honoring thing to the Lord would be that you would sit there and when it's not necessarily your preference because we have a mixed congregation. It's never going to be our preference. We've got mixed races. We've got mixed generations. I mean, if you ask so-and-so what they want in worship, they're going to say it this way. If you ask that person, they're going to say it this way. What would be so honoring to God is if we, in our hearts, are saying, God, 
I want to put others before myself. I defer. I defer on the style. I defer. I don't even like Clint's preaching, but I think he's actually teaching the Bible, so I'll stay. You know, it, I'm going to put others before myself. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourself. You want to know in the spiritual realm when somebody's sitting there and they're singing a song that they can't stand the tune to, but they've decided they're not going to smirk. They're going to look at the words and worship God even though they don't like the way it's being done. I got to believe that that is sincere worship to a holy God that when that person does that and defers to the other generation, whether it be the older or the younger or black or white or whatever the cultural difference is in, the way we do it, that that has got to bring more glory to God than me getting the music played or whatever the way I want it. I got to believe that. 